And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Fifty years ago this week, a stealthy band of operatives for the committee to re-elect President Richard Nixon burgled the Democrat National Committee offices in a Washington complex called Watergate. That caper, thwarted by an alert night watchman, and the cover-up that followed touched off one of the greatest scandals in American history. It would lead to both criminal and congressional investigations and Richard Nixon's resignation two years later. The star witness in the case was John Dean, Nixon's young White House counsel, who became what he described as the desk officer for the cover-up. Dean implicated Nixon and the highest-ranking members of his administration. I sat down with Dean, executive producer and star of CNN's new documentary, Watergate Blueprint for a Scandal, to recall those momentous events and talk about the lessons we should draw today. Here's that conversation. John Dean, it's it's great to see you. Welcome, first of all. Thank, Thank you, you for being here. I watched your documentary on CNN, which you executive produced and in which you starred about Watergate and your journey. And it kind of reminded me of my own journey because I remember being a college kid and uh, watching Watergate unfold in the little television in our dormitory. And my first introduction to you and most people's first introduction to you was in that hearing room when, what, 80 million people were were watching? 85, I think it was 85 million households. So how does that, that translate to- More than 85 million more people. More than though. 85, I guess. Yeah, which is, I mean, actually, that's an important number to remember because we're, we have these hearings going on now on the 50th anniversary of Watergate this week. We have hearings going on about the insurrection and the President Trump's role in that insurrection. And these hearings are obviously very well-researched, very powerful. But I think 20 million people watched uh, on the first night, and pr- pr- far fewer today. We're talking on Monday. Given the fact that it was a morning hearing this morning, the West, it was very early. Now, that isn't what happened in the first hearing when they got 20 million people. But 20 million is still not 85 million it's households. Not, but And we hope it's not uh, 20 million people who already know the story and already have resolved how they feel about it. Well, we know that Fox News didn't cover it at all. They weren't going to uh, displace Tucker for these hearings. So we, we live in a different time. And we, we, we will get to all that. But I want to go way back uh, before we get to that and talk a little bit about you and your journey, because yours is sort of such an interesting story to me. And I don't mean just the few years when you went through uh, Watergate in the White House and the aftermath of that, but your 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 story about how you got to that point to uh, to to the White House, and I just want to ask you briefly about your your life and your upbringing. I know your dad was sort of a I don't want to use the word itinerant, but he moved around a lot as a corporate executive. My father was a Carnegie Mellon graduate and had a talent for fixing corporations that manufacturing corporations that were in trouble. Uh, he had a uh, a lot of practical knowledge, engineering knowledge, but a sixth sense of why a manufacturing company was having trouble manufacturing. So he would go in, fix a corporation, and then we'd move on 
to another one he'd take on. Uh, today, uh, he would be a, a uh, uh, private equity guy. Huh? He probably exactly. He, yeah. he would do that, run it that way. Let me ask you, though, for you as a kid, how was that uh, going from place to place and having to reestablish yourself in different towns and so on? What, how it, did that shape you? It, I don't recall uh, ever being uncomfortable with the fact that it was something of an adventure. And then when we got at high school, I went off to private school. So mm -hmm. then I was anchored thereafter, if you will. I kind of left home at 13, and uh, my folks did their own thing, and I did mine. Well, because I, I ask because, you know, and uh, we'll get into this in a second, but I'd have to describe your rise in Washington as uh, precocious. It was rapid. Uh, you had a talent for getting noticed. You had a talent for finding mentors. And I'm wondering where that came from. It wasn't by design. I, I never looked for a job. They all came to me. Uh, it's, it's a very curious thing. I, uh, yes, I, was, I went to Washington. What happened is my roommate in prep school was Barry Goldwater Jr., who yeah. was a lifetime friend. Uh, his dad, this was before his dad, the senator from Arizona, had run for president. The, exactly. He was a junior senator. When I first met him, he was a junior senator but a very popular one from Arizona. And Barry Jr. and I used to go from uh, Stanton, Virginia, up to Washington and stop to see his dad and have a, a great time with his dad. Is that when you got really sort of interested in, did you get the Washington bug? That's when I got interested in Washington. Yeah, what about it attracted you? Well, I saw this, 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 this handsome guy uh, who people admired, and, and he, he got along great with his colleagues. We know that because when he did pass away, uh, long after I'd first met him, uh, they, they had to fill two planes to, bring him, to come out to his funeral. Yeah. Uh, he, he was very popular, uh, but he, he, was, he was good company. Uh, he took a, Barry Jr. and I around the Senate, uh, so we saw him in action. And I said, this is a fascinating world. And talk to him, and he 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 was of the belief that everybody uh, should do public service. Uh, that you, you you just don't bitch about the government. You get in and you f work on fixing it. But you like the scene. You like the the energy around it, huh? The whole the whole thing was was uh, was just fascinating. It was a, a world I had known nothing about. Uh, you know, introduced at the high school level. Uh, you're you're. Um, you're fairly impressionable, I guess. And that's where the impressions were made. And I said, hey, I want to follow this up. You mentioned Goldwater. You know, he, he famously said when he was uh, nominated in 1964 that extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. But you have to wonder how he would have dealt with this crowd today, you know, the Trump crowd. You know, he was a sort of libertarian. He was a classic liberal is what he really is. Uh, he had in, for example, had no opposition whatsoever to Roe. Uh, mm -hmm. He could not have survived as a conservative in today's Republican politics. Uh, he had already turned on the evangelicals before he passed. He was in a real sort of pissy match with them, if you will. He thought they didn't belong in the Republican Party. I think he stood up for, for gay rights as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Today, he would not be a Republican. 
he'd be drummed out of the party. Interesting. He's such an iconic figure. Uh, you you went to uh, a number of uh, a couple of different colleges, but at Worcester College in Ohio, you went to Washington for uh, for a semester. Uh, so you obviously were cultivating uh, that interest. You you met yes. your 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 first wife, your future wife. She was the daughter of a of a very prominent uh, Democratic senator right. uh, in, in Washington, and then you went to American University and you studied government. You got a a master's degree, and then you went to law school, and was and all of this was in preparation to try and 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 work in government and politics. The elective route never attracted me. I knew there was a whole other appointed route that one could travel uh, up the chain, and I'd always promised the senator when I got my first job at the House Judiciary Committee. When we first talked about it, after I told him I was there, and he said, "You got to promise me." that you won't stay in government more than five years. And I said, why is that? He said, well, he said, I've seen too many guys like you who have lots of ability and should be in and out of government and not make a career of government. And so I made the promise. And actually, when I got to my five-year point, I went in and told Haldeman, chief of staff at the White House, that I uh, was going to leave government. And he said, no, you're not, unless you want to be an enemy of this administration. Oh, well, and you knew that they kept uh, they kept a list of their enemies. So he was serious about that. I knew that the list that they sent to me ended up in my desk drawer. But so uh, the enemy, the enemies project that Nixon had, that was a bomb I dropped uh, the second day of my testimony, knowing there'd be an overreaction to it and knowing that really little was done in that area. It got way overplayed uh, and has historically been never t- very well corrected. Although one of the conversations that you reported was uh, a conversation with Nixon uh, before this the 72 election in which he said he thought that the administration had gone too light on their enemies and would, uh, in the second term, he was going to deploy the power of the Justice Department and the power of the FBI, I guess he'd right. be the IRS. This was my first meeting with him during Watergate. It's my first meeting with him where it's basically he and I talking, Haldeman is there. H.R. Haldeman and Bob Haldeman is chief of staff. Chief of staff. And it's, as I have said it is the most embarrassing comment on all the recordings I have. I have 37 conversations with Nixon. It was a suck-up line, yeah. It's a pure suck-up line. You said that's an exciting prospect when he said this about using the all the... The other side of it is not what it said about you, but what it said about him. And, you know, we live in this the era of Trump. The idea that these, uh, that these uh, agencies were... Uh, at his political disposal, obviously, is at the core of Watergate. And it, it is this thing that he and Trump share in common. They both uh, believe that all of these uh, tools should be available to them for their political use. That's true. But what happened with Nixon is because of Watergate, he never got there. He ended up being in the mess he was in and never became the implementer of his enemies project that he dreamed of being. 
before we get into that, let me just, I just want to get you to the White House because you mentioned you did a brief stint at, the, at a law firm in Washington. You had kind of a messy departure from that law, law firm over a, a, some business dealings that the law firm thought were a conflict of interest. Right. Uh, and you, but, but how did you end up as the, as the chief counsel of the House? Minority counsel to the House Judiciary Committee. I started in my senior year of law school looking on the Hill for a job. And the reason I ended up going to that law firm is I didn't find a job I liked. Uh, I didn't want to work for a member. I wanted to work for a committee. Uh, there's a huge difference being on the professional staff of a committee versus being an aide to a, a member. Uh, and I had turned down a an interesting clerkship in hindsight. Uh, I had uh, I'd been interviewed by Judge John Sirica. No kidding. Who ended up being like a heroic figure in the whole Watergate saga. He would later sentence me in his courtroom. Uh, <laughs> that's how ironic it is. And I had turned him down. He had offered me the clerkship and, and never understood why I didn't take it. Maybe he would have treated you better if you had taken the clerkship. Well, I went back to the, the dean at Georgetown and told him, I said, he's a nice guy, but he's just not very smart. <laughs> oh, uh, that's that's a great story. After the Judiciary Committee, you became the director of the National Commission on Reform of Federal Criminal Laws, and you helped rewrite the criminal statutes. I wrote a law that created the National Commission to Reform the Federal Criminal Laws, for, and it was the only piece of Republican legislation in a Democratic Congress that got out. And what happened, and I'd just been reading some articles uh, in law journals, wherever. And so I, I went to the legislative uh, office and I said, let's, here, let's design a law that will clean up a lot of these problems. And a, a guy by the name of Dick Poff from Virginia, mm -hmm. congressman, jumped on it and, and ran with it. And as a result of its passing, uh, he was selected to be on it. And he said to me, he said, we've got this thing now. You got to help me and you got to go down there and make sure this is this is all Lyndon Johnson's people and Democrats uh, that we don't don't get in some kind of trouble with this thing. Uh, so he he twisted my arm to go down and and sort of at least be the administrative uh, head of it. I had no background in criminal law at all. Uh, other than having read that it was a mess, and I, I agreed it was. So I, I'm there during the 68 campaign, and I there are lots of academics who are feeding stuff in, which I'm in turn sharing with some of the people I know in the that are working with the Nixon campaign. Then when Nixon won, though you were on their radar screen, you moved around and you moved up pretty damn fast. Very fast. And how, the way I got to the, the Department of Justice is on New Year's Eve day, uh, I get a call from Nixon has just won the uh, the race uh, and he's putting together his, his presidency. And I get a call from Richard Kleindienst, who is the deputy attorney general designate. Uh, and ask, he asked if I would come to New York and meet with John Mitchell, the attorney general designate. They would offer me the 13th level job at the Department of Justice. You got close to John Mitchell, who was the 
uh, attorney general uh, because you were doing their legislative work on the Hill. Well, what what happened really, the way I I got closer, I got to know the people at the White House because neither Mitchell nor Kleindienst liked to do background briefers at the White House, particularly for the legislative program uh, that they were putting together. They found I was a fast study and they would send me over to do these background briefers, uh, you know, where it's, you know, I'm just a a spokesman from the Department of Justice. Uh, And that's where I meet the White House staff. That's where I meet Haldeman, Ehrlichman. So let me ask you about this, because in 1970, you're five years out of law school. You're 31 years old. They invite you to come and be White House counsel to succeed John Ehrlichman, who is uh, as you know, as close as anyone to the president, uh, and the question is, is why, uh, and whether or not. I mean, there I've seen a lot written about the fact that they thought that you would be a good factotum, that you wouldn't rock the boat, that you didn't know too much to be a problem uh, for them. What 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 do you think they thought they were getting in you? When they offer me the job, uh, Bud Krogh, who was an Ehrlichman aide, uh, he said, would John Mitchell let you come over to the White House? And are you interested? And I said, well, Bud, why aren't you getting that job as counsel to the president? You're a a deputy counsel now. He said, because I'm going with John Ehrlichman as an assistant to the president on domestic policy. I immediately figured out what's going on, what's happened is that they want to get rid of the grunt side of the work of the council's office and they're going to the, the guy who's going to remain for all practical purposes as nixon's counsel is john ehrlichman and right. i'm going to get the title of counsel of the president at 31 i couldn't turn it down when yeah. i raised it with mitchell and Kleindienst both uh they said you're getting the title you're not going to get the job i said i, I appreciate that uh, but how in the hell do you turn down that title at 31? No one knows how. It's all gray what happens inside those uh, gates at the White House. So you know that as well as I do. Talk about some of the things that were underway while you were there, particularly the plumber's unit that was developed to, to, to deal with leaks. What happened, uh, David, is when in July of, of 19... Uh, 71, after Daniel Ellsberg had leaked the Pentagon Papers, the study, the highly classified study of the origin. And critical study. Critical, and, 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 but highly classified yes. study of, of uh, the origins of the war in Vietnam, which did not affect Nixon. It was not critical right. of Nixon in any way. It was crit- critical of, of the Democrats for yeah. lying. Kennedy to the American- Johnson, yeah. Right. Anyway, when that after that leaks, one day Jack Caulfield, who is just roams around, he'd worked for Ehrlichman. He's on my staff budget, but doesn't really do anything for me. Uh, but he comes into my office wide-eyed and says, "John, you got to help me." I said, "What? How so?" He said, uh, "The I have." just come from Colson's office and Colson wants me to firebomb the Brookings Institute. And I said, come again. And he explains 
that Colson has got this this Charles Colson, Chuck Colson. He's a, a top aide to the president. Top aide. He's the president's well-known hatchet man. Yeah, uh, and a fairly ruthless character uh, in attacking the president's uh, enemies, if you will. But anyway, he says Colson wants me to break into the Brookings because the president wants some papers in the in the, in the file in the Brookings. And what the the game plan is is to go in firebomb the place when the fire department responds before they get there we'll have a, a a group that will go in pretending to be firemen and get in the safe i said chuck i said they were he wanted ellsberg's papers sensitive information that he, he thought was harmful i tell caulfield do nothing uh don't touch this and i fly i try to reach ehrlichman on the phone he's not there i i get on the courier flight to san clemente uh, goes out to one of the Air Force bases and then takes me up to San Clemente and wait for Ehrlichman to come back in on Monday morning uh, to tell him, you know, John, this is a crazy scheme that Colson is cooking up. And he he picks up the phone and says to Chuck, he says, young counsel Dean is out here, doesn't think the Brookings plan is a very good one, cancel it. Boom, puts the phone down. Said anything else? I said, that'll do it. And I left. Uh, but what I learned later is because of my actions, they when when they decide to create the plumbers unit, uh, they're given everybody's given specific instructions. Don't tell Dean about what you're doing. He's a little old lady. And so they created this unit. G. Gordon Liddy, former FBI man. E. Howard Hunt, former intelligence officer. These guys were already working at the White House. So they yes. bring them down to this special unit that Bud Krogh is given. Uh, he is co-director with David Young, who's a former Kissinger aide. And the two of them uh, are instructed uh, by the president, uh, on t- it's, it's on tape, of, obviously, today, that, that he wants to deal with leaks. And he wants to deal with it uh, in a fairly ruthless manner. They're also monitoring the FBI's investigation of Daniel Ellsberg to see purportedly if he had also had contact with the Russians. They believe that. And when they learn that the FBI is unable to get anything out of Ellsberg's psychiatrist, who they interview, and he naturally claims uh, the, uh, patient, the, patient the, patient, the patient privilege, right. Uh, that's when they cook up this scheme uh, Howard Hunt, who you've introduced, mm-hmm. and Gordon Liddy, who you've introduced, hook up this scheme to break in uh, this doctor's office to see what is in his files about Ellsberg. Uh, and they come back and sell this to uh, first to Bud Krogh and David Young, who in turn write it up and take it to Ehrlichman for approval, who approves it in in a handwritten note saying, so long as I have your assurance that it is not going to any way connect to the White House, which, of course, you've already connected it to the White House with that very statement. <laughs> so in the beginning of uh, 1972, there was a big meeting at which, you know, uh, these same guys, uh, uh, Liddy, I guess, uh, he goes over to the campaign. Right. ostensibly as counsel, but it's really to kind of lead an effort of political espionage over there. In working on the documentary, 
uh, on all this. I corrected things that were wrong, mm-hmm. uh, and 98% of them were accepted. Uh, one of the things that's wrong that got in there, that Liddy's only assignment at the re-election committee was to be in charge of intelligence. That is exactly the opposite reason they sent him there. They, what The true story, which I uh, put on film, uh, is that John Ehrlichman and Bud Krogh knew they had to get Liddy out of the White House. Once he bungled the break-in in Ellsberg's doctor's office, he has implicated the White House in a serious felony on multiple levels, but both a federal crime and state crimes, California crime. Liddy's mission, Liddy goes to the re-election committee and his, his, he really goes as a general counsel, but he doesn't want to do the work. And they try to fire Magruder says, I got, I need a general counsel. He was the deputy director. So when they realize Liddy is not up to the task, they hire another guy, a deputy, they know who will do it. And, and Magruder gets into fights with Liddy uh, all the time, and they 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 want to remove him. The person who saves him is a guy by the name of Fred LaRue, and uh, Fred uh, says, well, we got to keep Liddy because he's doing our dirty tricks for us. And so that's how, you know, that, that's why they keep him. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Did Liddy outline, did he outline for all of you, it's been reported in places that he outlined for a group of you what he wanted to do. It's the most, one of the most amazing meetings I've ever attended, not only in government, but anywhere. And Liddy is over there with easels set up, an easel set up in the attorney general's back office uh, and liddy liddy begins this pitch and he calls the operation this is his gemstone operation and there are things like intercepting ground to air communications with a chase plane for the opponent can campaign operation uh he's also at that time there were really a lot of demonstrations anti-war demonstrations he's got a solution he offers mitchell he said, we plan to kidnap the leaders of the anti-war movement and take them below the border, drug them and take them below the border. He's got a plan to lease houseboats down in Miami at the convention where the Democrats are holding their convention. And, and he, he'll have a squad of prostitutes lure Democratic leaders, could have been a David Axelrod. Uh, Not me, figure. brother. <laughs> lure them to this houseboat where he would have a two-way camera mirror situation and somehow uh, they would reveal the inner secrets of the democratic plans you know and i at, at this but point but one of the getting, things wasn't one of them that he wanted to put listening devices into the democratic headquarters a week or 10 days later I, I go back after that meeting and tell haldeman what's happened in mitchell's office and i said this is crazy shit i mean this is just uh, off the wall and and he says, I agree, you should have nothing to do with this. And what, what happens is Magruder calls me and says that Liddy's coming back to Mitchell's office and you should probably hear his plans. So I go up to Mitchell's office and Magruder and Liddy are 
huddled around Mitchell's desk, and they're talking about things like electronic surveillance at the Watergate. And I said at that point, I said, hey, you guys are talking about things that should never be talked about in the office of the Attorney General of the United States. Just poured cold water on it as fast as I could. And I go back and tell Haldeman what I've done again, uh, because I, I think the White House should be clean of this. This is, this is not the kind of things that should get dragged into the White House. So that's the last I heard about it until June 19th, when I return from Manila after two days after the arrests at the Watergate on June 17th of 1972. Uh, and it doesn't take me any time at all to put together the pieces. I mean, what's phenomenal to me, and I think, you know, I remember it. I remember, obviously, the Post was very aggressive in covering it and so on. But uh, Liddy, Hunt, former operatives of the CIA, this thing was so rife with a scandal. But you, you undertook to try and tamp the story down. I didn't have to tamp the story down. The only paper covering the story was the Washington Post. So the Post, and it was a Metro story in the Post. Uh, they often made it to the front page, but the national reporters didn't cover it at all. And there's no real national coverage of, of it throughout the campaign. You talked about becoming the desk officer for the cover-up. The first thing that you had to confront was the fact that these uh, these burglars uh, needed to be paid off. They, they needed to pay for their lawyers. They needed... There's a tape. I have the benefit now of having listened to every Nixon tape relating to Watergate. He is the one who says, these people are going to be need to be taken care of. Uh, and he said, what I want to do is I'm going to call B.B. Rebozo, who was his best yeah, non-government non yeah. friend, uh, who had, had deep ties to the Cuban community. And the men who had been arrested at the Watergate uh, were Cuban-Americans. Uh, Hunt and Liddy were not arrested at the time. That, that comes much, much later. But so initially, Nixon says, I want to set up a defense fund for these people, which were very common at the time. And Nixon said, have Bibi set that up, draw on the Cuban community down there that hates McGovern, and make a political issue out of it. Uh, meanwhile, Mitchell uh, is getting pressured by Liddy to start taking care of these people. What happens uh, is Liddy confesses to me, he said, nobody's going to talk. I'm pretty comfortable on that. But John, you should know something. While I was working at the White House, I did an operation for Ehrlichman, a national security operation, where we broke into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. Two of the men I used in California at that operation are now in jail because I used them at the Watergate. He said, we need to get those men out of jail. I said, well, Lid I said, Gordon, there's nothing I, I can do on, on that count. Uh, it's just, uh, I don't know how you're going to deal with that. And I went back and told Ehrlichman, and he just played it as poker-faced as, as can be, uh, not even acknowledging he knew about the Ellsberg break-in. But now you're engaged. You have to solve this problem. I don't know all these problems at that point. As I say, the desk officer, I'm picking up information and sharing it back and forth 
And at this point, John Mitchell, who was Nixon's old friend, had resigned as attorney general, right, to become his campaign manager. And Ehrlichman and Mitchell, their dislike of each other is why I became the desk officer. They can't talk to each other even. They don't want to talk to each other. They don't trust each other. Uh, Ehrlichman has, from day one, tried to influence Mitchell and in how he runs the Department of Justice unsuccessfully. Mitchell uh, d doesn't want Ehrlichman telling him now how to run his campaign. So I become the, the middleman, and that's how I get drawn right into this thing. And so you had to find ways to get financing and, and so on. Mitchell comes to me and says, we need to activate Herb Kambach. Uh, who was the president's personal lawyer uh, and a f large fundraiser for the re-election. So Mitchell wants me to go to Haldeman and Ehrlichman to say that he needs Kambach to raise money to take care of these guys. So I do that. Uh, and do I think it's criminal at that time? No, I didn't. I, I thought it was a defense fund. Uh, was I stupid? You bet. But over time, John, you get deeper and deeper in. When I go in with both feet is after the election. First of all, there was never any grand meeting where, we, where everyone sits around and says, we've got to cover this up. Obstruction of justice is, is necessary. First of all, nobody had ever heard of obstruction of justice. Uh, Watergate puts that crime on the map. Uh, it, 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 it also, nobody had ever thought, that the White House could be investigated. I had I knew Henry Peterson very well, who's the head uh, of the of criminal Henry, division. Henry Peterson is keeping me informed. So just giving you the, all the, the details of their investigation. You know, it was a different era than post Watergate. You know, he's telling me that, you know, the FBI has no business over there, John. Uh, if Hoover were alive, uh, they wouldn't dare be pounding on your doors, uh, things like that. So. Uh, I just don't have the background to know these things. I, but I do jump in with both feet, knowing it's obstruction of justice after the election, because Chuck Colson, who we've introduced, mm -hmm. uh, uh, comes to me after the election. Colson comes to my office, and he has recorded a conversation, a telephone conversation with Howard Hunt, and he plays it for me. And it, he's he's pleased as punch because. Hunt exonerates him. So Chuck is thrilled to have this. But what troubles me is Hunt says, listen, Chuck, this thing is going to break apart uh, for foolish reasons because we're not getting get paid money that we should be getting paid, in essence, to remain silent. And as soon as I heard that, I said, that's either extortion or bribery. I don't know which one, but I better get my, my fingers walking in the law books and that's when I find, indeed, obstruction of justice and that we're obstructing justice. I have just been married about two weeks. Right. You, you'd just gotten remarried. Had I thought I was involved in criminal activity, uh, I would have never married the woman I've now been married to for 50 years and have apologized to her for the hell I put her through uh, from my own stupidity on what I knew and didn't know. Anyway. After I find the obstruction statute, I go right over, I take, make, make a copy of it, go right over to Ehrlichman's office and say, John, we are in trouble. We're paying for the silence of people who should be in front of the grand jury. As I said in the documentary, it's hard for me to believe that he 
went to Stanford Law School, where his classmates were William Rehnquist, former Chief Justice, Sandra Day O'Connor, and he somehow missed the day when they taught about criminal intent, because he says to me, he says, John, we're not violating that statute because I have no criminal intent. I said, John, I don't think you understand criminal intent, uh, and, and walked out realizing I'm going to get no relief here. But what I also realized, I'm in a lot of trouble. We're all in a lot of trouble. I got to make this cover up work. That's when I do the really stupid things like destroying Hunt's notebooks. Yeah. Howard Hunt, you went into his safe at the, he had an office in the, in, in the White House complex. The notebooks had somehow been left in my safe and I find them amongst the president's estate plan. And I don't even study them, don't want to know, shred them. Uh, and no, I'm, I'm probably obstructing justice, but I got to make this thing work. So yes, that's when I start, that's when I start doing clearly, knowingly criminal activity. And it ends, however, when, How- when Howard Hunt gets wind and he sends a message to me through one of the lawyers at the reelection committee, and uh, this re-election committee lawyer says to me, he said, Howard Hunt wants to send a message to you that if he doesn't get paid 120 some thousand dollars like yesterday, he's going to have seamy things to say about what he did for John Ehrlichman while working at the White House and by implications, probably others. Uh, and, and O'Brien says, what are you going to do about that? The, the guy who brought the message, I said, I'm not in the money business anymore. I'm not going to touch that. In fact, Paul, I'm likely to blow this whole thing up. This is, this is stupid. This is, this is endless. You and I are carrying all these messages around. We've got ourselves in deep trouble, and I'm going to try to get the president to end this thing. And that's what I did. On March 23rd. March 21st. And you, so you go in, and that's an extraordinary conversation. That's when you warn him that there's a cancer close to the presidency. It's growing. It's growing daily. You explain the whole scenario, including Hunt's demand. And what, ex- what did you expect the president to say to you in response? I, I thought at some point his hand would come down, on the fist would come down on the desk and say, this is crazy. This, this isn't behavior we can engage in. I, I was trying to raise one horrible after another horrible after another horrible until at some point he did that. I, this is also the day I think I met Richard Nixon, who he really was. I think he had played games with me and tried to have an image of himself in front of me. But this is, the, this is where I really saw who I'm dealing with. He asked you tellingly, instead of saying we're not going to pay, he asked you, how much you thought it would take to keep well i i said i kept telling him this could go on indefinitely he said well how much could it cost and i pulled out of thin air what i thought was a number he defined offensive i said well it could cost a million dollars i'd never even contemplated how much it might might run Uh, and his reaction caught me even more i can hear on the tapes my own gasp at times i'm not selling him i'm trying you know I'm dealing with the leader of the Western world. I'm 30, some mid-30s. I'm dealing with a man much my senior. I, I don't want to push too hard and say, what the hell are you thinking, uh, Mr. President? This is crazy stuff. 
but rather I tell him, you know, it could cost a million dollars. And he said, John, that's no problem. I know where we can get a million dollars. In fact, what happens, I know from later, uh, from doing other tapes, is he goes into Rose Wood's office His after secretary. I leave yeah. and, I, and, and says, how much do we have in the slush fund? Uh, and he also raises, goes to a, uh, uh, one of the people who is funding the, uh, the secret payments and thanks him uh, and tells him we may need more uh, after I leave that meeting. So, you know, I, I, I totally failed. And, you know, I thought I created a hurdle he couldn't get around when I realized it's not working. I'm telling him, Mr. President, people may have to go to jail. That's, that's where we are. And he says, like who? And I said, like me. And he goes, oh, for the obstruction thing, I can't, I, I don't believe that. That's not going to happen. So I won't, he doesn't even want to hear, but I know I've left the message that the president's counsel thinks he's on his way to jail. Uh, makes it me a little bit radioactive, at least. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. That conversation you had led to the sort of decisive weeks of your story in that you got called back by the president just a short time later, and he called you over to the, his office, not the Oval Office, but in the executive office building in the evening. April 15th. This is after I get wind that they don't know what to do with me. And they just say, we'll make him responsible for the cover-up. So I have my secretary call the lead newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, AP, and issue a statement that I won't be the scapegoat of Watergate. And if they don't understand that, they don't understand me, or they don't understand how the system works. And so Nixon, by the 15th, he wants to know more. Uh, so I, I go in after to meet with Nixon late at night. He's been out on the Sequoia with Bibi. They've been drinking. He's, I can smell alcohol in his breath. Uh, he's made, he, it's a very unusual conversation in that he's got a legal pad with a bunch of questions for me in his lap. And he starts through these questions. Uh, and the, the, the most glaring example of, of what he was doing, of trying to get me on record in a way that was less harmful to him, is he said, you remember that conversation we had when you told me there was a cancer on the presidency and we were talking about these guys demanding money and, and you said it could cost a million dollars? Well, you didn't know when I said I could get you, we could get that. I was just joking, didn't you? And I said, well, I didn't take it that way at the time, but that's what you say. Uh, and then at one point, he literally gets up from his chair and, and in a stage whisper across the EOB says, John, I was foolish to talk to Chuck Colson about clemency for Hunt, wasn't I? And I said, yes, Mr. President, I think that's probably obstruction of justice. Uh, I, it, it, that's the moment I said, this is being recorded. I said, those leading questions, very unlike the prior conversations I've had with this man. And he knows the answers. He, he's not liking the answers I'm getting. So he now has a question he doesn't want recorded. And so he's going to cross the office. But he wants my answer. And then is it the next day? Was it the next day that he called you in and 
pushed a resignation letter in your direction? Virtually, yes. So, but what did happen was you realized that you were cooked and you began cooperating with federal prosecutors and ultimately famously. What happened is I realized I wasn't going to convince anybody in the Nixon White House to come forward and end the cover up. And so I was going to blow it up, including meeting with the prosecutors told them that. I said, I wanted to up the stakes for them. But there also, you had self-interest here as well, because- Oh, uh, you bet your boots. Yeah. When you were rewriting the, helping to rewrite the criminal code, you, there was a provision that was inserted there for limited immunity, use immunity. So if you offer testimony that is helpful, that testimony, you could be immunized for the things that you testified to. You were aware of that, obviously, at the time that you approached the prosecutors. Totally aware of it. And my lawyer, Charlie Schaffer, understood that very well. And we went initially in working with the, with the prosecutors. Uh, we said, you know, we, we didn't, we, I was given equitable immunity. That's when the prosecutor just says, you can come in and talk to us and we won't prosecute you for anything you tell us. And we very quickly found out that this wasn't going to go anywhere. So I also knew Sam Dash, who had been who was involved the counsel in- counsel to the Senate Watergate Committee, select committee to investigate Watergate. Right. He, 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 he was intimately familiar with the immunity statute and had said to, to Charlie, if John has the kind of testimony I think he does, he fits as a ideal person to immunize. Uh, there is just no way the government could have prosecuted me Charlie was confident of that uh, had I decided not to plead. But I had decided to plead from the get-go. I'd actually gone to Schaffer to negotiate a plea uh, because I knew that these guys were going to lie. I knew I was prepared to take responsibility for my own activity. Uh, I didn't think anybody else would, but I thought I, I, thought I would uh, uh, just go in and be that more, much more dangerous if they knew. I knew I'd, I'd end it all if I was prepared to, to plead. We referenced this at the beginning. I, I can't communicate strongly enough as someone who is a young person then paying a lot of attention, watching your testimony, how stunning it was. It also was lengthy, 60,000 words, 245 pages. You read every bit of it. Well, I hadn't planned on that. I didn't. If if, uh, if I had known they were going to have me read the entire statement, it would have been maybe six thousand words at the most. Uh, no idea that I'd had to read that whole thing. It took it took like eight hours of of steady monotone reading to to get through it. So you it, you essentially indicted the president of the United States in in your and a lot of other people in your narrative, but the thing that probably was the most significant was you aired your suspicion that there was this taping system. Turned out to be you know a a line that I really debated whether to put that in because it was speculation on my part. I didn't know for a fact, and I was trying to just deal in pure knowledge, something I could support. But I, that was a bootstrap, and I, I told my lawyer I was going to do it. He said, do it. 
Yeah, it took, I mean, it took almost a year for those tapes to finally emerge because obviously Nixon understood what the import of those uh, tapes were as well. But the thing I wanted to ask you about was that firing of, so the special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, was determined to get these tapes uh, when he pressed the issue and said he was going to pursue them. The president uh, ordered him fired. The attorney general, then Elliot Richardson, refused. The deputy refused, and he was fired. Uh, Richardson resigned. I remember how stunned the country was. This happened on a Saturday night, and it seemed unthinkable. It seemed like uh, I, I raise it because we live in the Trump era now. You saw some of the things that he did. He fired the FBI director. Uh, he obviously he he had designs at the end of his tenure we're learning now and we i guess we learned in books and reporting that he wanted to replace the acting attorney general and insert someone who would support his you know his uh, lie about the elections so it does this is a good point a good time to raise this question with you which is how do you view Trump through the lens of your experience and your knowledge of Richard Nixon? Uh, they both were trying to subvert democracy in some ways. Do you think that Nixon's, uh, his anti-democratic tendencies, uh, how do you compare him to Trump? I mean, obviously, he was much more rooted in government and so on. As a result of, of my experience, where I watched my colleagues and my peers click their heels, salute, and go off and do stuff like firebomb the Brookings Institute, mm -hmm. uh, like start tax audits on uh, hundreds of people, uh, just blindly doing those things with no, where I know from knowing them that they had morals. They knew the difference between right and wrong. I never understood why they did those things. So I, that got me into tr studying authoritarian personalities. And I visited that subject again with a title just before that was done just before the, the last election called Donald Trump and his authoritarian followers. He indeed, I don't think, saw until he went out and became himself, because uh, he's a poster boy for an authoritarian personality. Uh, he didn't realize that there were so many people out there that would be willing to unquestionably follow him. And we see that today. These are the kind of people who will, will accept the big lie and run with it and not have a qualm about it. It's a fluke that they can get control of government, but it's our, the fluke of our system where we have an electoral college and uh, you, you don't need a majority to control the government. So we have right now a minority that is capable or was capable during the Trump years of controlling. Uh, I think I think we're more alert to that now, and it's not as likely to happen. But the other thing about these people is you can't convince them they're wrong. They are they the, the, they were embarrassed before to surface as they are now. Not any longer. Trump has given them permission uh, to be out there. We we have we have our white supremacists that get arrested regularly and are proud of it. Uh, and these are. These are tough times because authoritarianism is going to challenge a fragile government, a fragile system of government, as our democracy is, like it's never been challenged. 48 years ago, Nixon was forced from office, and he was forced from office because after the tapes were released, 
your friend, Senator Goldwater, and a delegation went down to the White House. I've talked to the senator about this. this. Uh, I remember uh, the conversation vividly. He said, you know, first thing we get down there, uh, and uh, Haig is then the uh, chief of staff. And Haig gets us in his office and says, for God's sake, don't tell him it's time to go. Don't tell him that. Uh, he's almost there. He's, we're, we're, he's talking to the family about it. But if you push him and, and, and force that issue, he'll, he'll turn around to 180 and, and his back will get up and he'll never go. So this is delicate. And so Goldwater said they didn't push at all. When asked what they saw the vote count, they told him how dire it was. But they didn't tell him he had to go. But uh, here's my question. President Trump was impeached twice. There were votes in the Senate twice. There was one Senator Mitt Romney who voted to impeach him in the first instance. There were seven, I believe, in the second. Would Richard Nixon have survived in today's environment, the balkanized media environment, the deep polarity, uh, Fox News? uh, Would he have been able to ride out the storm? And would he have tried? I think there's no question. It would have been very different had there, one, been a Fox News. Uh, He was instrumental in the idea of creating a Fox News. Uh, I think it would have been a whole different dynamic. Uh, But also, you've got to remember the huge difference between Trump and Nixon is that Nixon clearly has a conscience. Uh, is he ruthless at times? You bet. Uh, did he override his conscience many times? Yes. Was, was he, uh, was he a racist? And, uh, yes, all those things. But he did, he did believe in one thing, which was the rule of law. And I, I, he just accepted that that was the way, the only way the system would work if you did honor the constitution. And I think that's the only reason he, finally decided, I'm not going to put the country through an impeachment. The other problem is he lost his staff uh, by the time he resigned. They were, the key players uh, didn't think he should survive or would survive, and they were running for the rafters. One last question about you. You graduated from law school at 26 years old, you become the White House counsel by the time you're 31. And by the time you're 35, you find yourself a central player in a, in a great political scandal. And Richard Nixon is pardoned by Gerald Ford. How did that sit with you then? And how does it sit with you now? You spoke a little bit about it in the documentary. Yeah, I, my initial reaction was I thought it grossly unfair to Haldeman, Ehrlichman, everybody else involved to give the president a pass when it was clear all this was done for him. These weren't freelancers. Uh, These were people who were trying to please the man who got the pardon. It just seemed unbalanced. I understood it, though, that he clearly didn't want to be burdened, as he would have been, by a trial of Richard Nixon. I don't think, based on reading the records of the prosecutor's office, they would have indicted uh, Nixon. And the reason they wouldn't have is because he couldn't get a fair trial. Uh, that's the issue today with Trump. How does a man 
that high and that conspicuous and that uh, and, and and as circusy as it would be, uh, get a fair trial. How do you find a jury that can even uh, make those de- deliberations, knowing that this is the first president to ever be in front of a jury? I think Georgia might do it, and that's where it should happen at a lower level than at the national level. And I think it's it's a travesty either way it plays to not indict Trump, who has clearly, conspicuously violated many laws. Uh, certainly the, the law that got everybody at Watergate was the general conspiracy statute of the federal government. Well, there are multiple conspiracies that Trump is not only involved in, he, he created them knowingly, openly. No, no issue of criminal intent here. And yet he's the... Uh frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024. He is. I, I don't. The Republican Party of today is is a very different party. It's smaller than it's ever been. And its ideology is is radical, uh, which there are no moderates in the Republican Party. The, there are people who say, well, I'll look at the candidate and decide who I'm going to vote. I know I have a lot, a lot of Republican friends who voted for Trump because of the, of the economic side of it, the tax side of it. And many of them regret doing it, but they say my selfish uh, sense uh, had me voting for the Republican Party, not for necessarily Donald Trump. So it's a, it, it's a real problem. But one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons that Watergate is instructive is it shows us uh, how fragile the system is. And it is being tested now much, much more seriously than during Watergate. What do you want people to say about John Dean? Clearly, Watergate is going to be part of your epitaph. But what do you want people to say about you? Obviously, someone who's been through what I've been through and as, is as public as I am, I've been asked this question many times. The, my answer always comes back to the fact I have no control over it. So I, my wanting or not wanting has little relevance. My hope is that he was a truth teller. That's the best I could hope for. You've shared a lot. And the question is, you know, what lesson do we derive that we can apply to today? Well, let me tell you, I, I, I may be naive, but I believed back during Watergate, and I believe it today, that the truth has its own way of getting out. And Trump can't suppress it. Uh, Republicans can't suppress it. And the, the game they're playing, the dangerous game they're playing with democracy now, uh, they will take this, their full share of blame because the truth shows they own it. Yeah, well, I, I would also say another thing that the Watergate story shows and uh, that we're relearning again today through these hearings that uh, democracy does rely on the good will of people who are actors in the process. And uh, we, we, we were able to um, inaugurate a president who was duly elected by the American people because there were people up and down the line, including uh, the president's own Justice Department, that refused to bow to pressure. And uh, that, is, that is an inspiring part of the story. One hopes that the wall holds and that uh, 
you know, we, we, we can navigate through this sort of sordid episode in our history. Dangerous times, no question. But always good to be with you, my friend. Thank you so much, John Dean. David, it's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.